Matthew chapter 1. Uh, you guys can follow along if you would. Um, we have some Bibles in the back. We'll have it up on the screen. Uh, I want you guys to be able to have your Bibles so you can open up chapter 1. Uh, we'll pick it up at verse 4. Um, we'll read down to the end of the chapter. Uh, starts off and it says, verse 4. But the Lord hurled a great wind upon the sea, and there was a mighty tempest on the sea, so that the ship threatened to break up. And then the mariners, they were afraid, and they each cried out to his God. And they hurled the cargo that was on the ship into the sea to lighten it for them. But Jonah had gone down into the inner part of the ship, and he had lain down and was fast asleep. So then the captain came to him and he said, What do you mean, you sleeper? Arise, call to your God, perhaps the God who gives... Uh, give." Perhaps your God will give a thought to us that we might not perish. And they said to one another, come, let us cast lots that we might know on whose account this evil has come upon us. So they all cast lots and then the lot fell on Jonah. Then they said to him, tell us on whose account this evil has come upon us. What is your occupation and where do you come from and what is your country? and What people are you from? And then he said to them, I'm a Hebrew and I fear the Lord, the God of heaven who made the sea and the dry land. And then the men were exceedingly afraid, and they said to him, What is this that you have done? For the men knew that he was fleeing from the presence of the Lord, because he had told them. And they said to him, What shall we do to you, that the sea may quiet down for us? And then the sea grew even more tempestuous. And they said to them, Pull me up, throw me into the sea, and then the sea will quiet down. For I know that it is because of me that this great tempest has come upon you. Nevertheless... The men rowed even harder to get back to dry land, but they could not, for the sea grew even more and more tempestuous against them. Therefore, they called out to the Lord, and the Lord, and they said, Lord, let us not perish for this man's life, and lay not on us innocent blood. For you, O Lord, have done as it pleased you. For they picked up Jonah, and then they hurled him into the sea, and the sea ceased from its raging. And the men feared the Lord exceedingly, and they offered a sacrifice to the Lord, and they made vows. And then verse 17. And then the Lord appeared, and a great fish. Uh, it, uh, sorry. And then the Lord appeared, a great fish, or appointed a great fish, and it swallowed up Jonah. And the Lord, or Jonah, sorry. I'm going to start that whole verse over again. So scratch everything I just said. I'm going to read 17 all over again. You guys did not hear all those botches. Here we go. The Lord appointed. That's the word I was looking for. A great fish to swallow up Jonah, and Jonah was in the belly of the fish for three days, three nights. God, we ask you right now that you would just speak to us uh, what your word has to say. Uh, Lord, merely understanding facts doesn't change us. But knowing your heart changes us. And God, we can't know your heart apart from your revelation. And so we pray, Father, that you would reveal yourself to us. Show us who you are. Show us what you're like. And transform who we are. And we pray and ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So what I want to do as we begin to look at this, this chapter, um, in fact, the entire book of Jonah, as we mentioned last week, is really unique as compared to any other what's called a prophetic literature throughout the Old Testament. Most Prophetic literature, most prophetic books in the Old Testament, uh, basically, for the most part, focus on the message of the prophet. Whereas the book of Jonah is unique in that it doesn't really focus on the message of the prophet. It actually focuses more upon the prophet himself. And so what makes that unique is that unlike other prophetic literature, uh, this is more of a narrative. It's more written like a storyline. We're basically brought into the story and kind of takes us on this journey with Jonah and kind of helps us understand a little bit about what Jonah's thinking, why Jonah is making the decisions that he's making, and what types of circumstances are causing the great chaos in Jonah's world. And we're kind of brought into the storyline. And so that's one of the things that makes this book uh, unique in that particular sense. And so one of the things I really want to focus on as we look at this chapter is that there's at least two things that I really want to look at that can be derived, I think, from the chapter. And then the final thing that we'll take a look at is more of trying to understand how we can avoid some of the things. So the first thing we'll take a look at, I think this chapter teaches us, is it teaches us something about God's intervention. It teaches us something about God's intervention. The second thing that the story, I think, teaches us in chapter 2 is that the default human nature uh, has a particular response. There's a particular response that is... 
That is the default mode of all human beings, whether you're religious or whether you're irreligious. So in other words, you could be somebody that like naturally uh, has sort of an affinity towards religion. Or you might be someone that actually hates religion. You're totally irreligious. You're just straight up anti-God. That the same attitudes or same responses oftentimes arise in our hearts. And then the final thing we'll basically take a look at is kind of more of a question or more of a way of trying to unpack how to. It's kind of one of those how-to summaries. We'll take a look at how do we basically undo the default mode of our heart. How do we reset the default mode of our heart so that we don't go down the path that the default mode of our heart typically takes us down. So the first thing, let's jump in and really try to understand a little bit about what this passage has to say about God's interventions. Basically, what you find in the gospel or in the book of Jonah and throughout much of the gospel in the New Testament is that the storyline of the Bible really is about God intervening. I'll give you a couple examples of this. Take a look at Jonah chapter 1 verse 4 and then go on to the very end of the chapter, Jonah chapter 1 verse 17. Both of which tell us something about God and what God's doing. Okay? They both declare to us, they speak to us, they tell us something about what God is doing. In both cases, we see in verse 4, it says, The Lord hurled a great wind upon the sea. Verse 17 says, The Lord appointed a great fish. Uh, you can go, go on to the end of the chapter, chapter 4, where it says in verse 6 of chapter 4, The Lord appointed a plant. Uh, again, in verse 7, But God appointed a woman, or appointed a worm, I should say. Sorry. <coughs> no, no offense. That was not a Freudian slip, I promise you. <coughs> Sorry. Um, the point of the matter is, is that God is not somehow disconnected with his creation. God's very much in connection. God's very much in relationship with his uh, creation. In other words, it's not the God of the deists. That he's not a God that just somehow created things and caused it all to be and then somehow slipped back into the back room to allow all things to sort of unfold or unpack the way they naturally do. But in reality, what Jonah tells us, in fact, chapter 2 very clearly, is that God is actually involved. He intervenes. He's a part of what's happening in the storyline. And in particular, in the story of the life of Jonah. And this is important for us to understand. In fact, what I would do in sort of summary, take a look at the next slide. Um, If we were to sort of summarize like what the Bible is about, I'll come back to that one, is that the storyline of the, the book of Jonah and really ultimately the entire Bible, is that it's a story of great sin, but at the same time, it's a story of great rescue. And that's what we see. In other words, God intervenes for a particular purpose, a distinct purpose, to rescue. That God's not just simply intervening to make people's lives miserable. God doesn't just simply show up on the scene as like sort of a cosmic party pooper to destroy everything, to ruin everything, to sort of show up and just sort of be this damper on the party of humanity that everybody wants to celebrate and do things great, have a fun time. And then God just shows up and he's just like Debbie Downer from Saturday Night Live. That's not who God is. God actually cares and loves his people. But the problem is, is that humanity basically takes their own lives, they hijack themselves in some ways their life and basically say, we're going to live our lives our own way, our own route. We'll be our own kings. We'll be our our own basic savior of our lives. But what ends up happening is it leads down to a path of brokenness. This is basically what we see with Jonah. So we see a picture of Jonah who is in rebellion. He's sinning against God. He's running from God. And as a result of this, God intervenes. Which kind of brings us back to the next slide, or slide just before this, which is that this idea that what we see is with God in the Bible is that God is basically intervening. God is intervening in and on behalf of the life of people that need intervention. Now, there's a lot of popular TV shows. In fact, TLC has a bunch of them. One of my favorite, to be honest with you, is Addicted. I've talked about this before. It's a great show. It's basically about people that have been addicted or taken control of by drugs. Most of the time, it's like meth. And they've lost control to it. Uh, maybe some of you guys have seen like My Strange Addictions where like people love to eat crayons or weird bugs and really strange addictions. I saw this one where this girl like loves to drink gasoline. She's like, I love gasoline. It's awesome. They're like, that's disgusting. You're dying. You're just, that's nasty. She's like, I love the flavor. It's just weird. And right. And that's kind of the, I mean, obviously it's, you know, it's reality shows and they've got to kind of raise people's eyebrows. But, and then also some of us have seen like hoarding or shows about hoarding or hoarders. It's basically the idea, the the main theme, general theme in every single one of these is even though sort of the poison that people are bringing in their bodies is different. 
you know, for uh, the people addicted. It's about actual uh, narcotics or drugs for people that are my strange addiction. It's all sorts of strange things. Uh, and for hoarding, it's people mess, you know, bringing stuff from the outside, kind of building it in. And they're just, they're basically bringing and causing the world to collapse upon them. But one thing that you'll notice in every single one of these, every person in every single one of these reality shows is bound. They're stuck. They're not free. The drug addict is not free. It's not free. If, they're, if they're, they've got kids, they're not free to go hang out with their kids and use their money to bless other people because their money is a means. It's their savior to get them more drugs. That's why they are constantly in need of getting more of it. Selling things, somehow just getting rid of stuff or stealing it, uh, committing crimes to get money so that they can get more drugs to be able to take care of their fix. They're not free. People obviously that have these strange addictions, they're not free. People that are involved in the hoarding, they're not free. You can't just invite someone over to your house and have a nice dinner or use your couch as a means of leading someone to Jesus because you don't have a couch. It's covered by mountains of books. You don't have a home. You don't have a life. You're not free. That's the point. And every single one of these shows, again, part of the main storyline, at some point throughout the story, there's an intervention. There's somebody that comes in from the outside and says, I'm here to help you. The funny thing, oftentimes, in most cases, most of the people don't think they need help. Most of the cases, people think, I don't need help. I'm fine. And so that intervention oftentimes can become very harsh. Where they basically pull them, they yank them from their circumstances. And it's oftentimes fueled, even though there may be some form of an aggression involved in that. It's always, I mean, you're watching these shows and you're always like, it's for their own good. Like someone has to bring the dump truck into the front yard of the person that's involved in hoarding. And someone needs to start throwing this junk away because it's going to collapse on that person. They're going to die. It's for their own good. So here's the interesting thing about humanity, though. Because it's easy for us to identify different types of needed forms of intervention, like a drug addict. That's obvious. You can look at that and be like, that guy's destroying his life. But how obvious is it if your choice of addiction is self-righteousness how obvious is that because here's the funny thing with self-righteous people on the external they can look really good they're very moral they don't cuss they don't go to bad movies they don't drink any alcohol they are very prim and proper keep their back straight help old ladies cross the street pay their taxes on time they do all sorts of really nice things with their time with their energy and with their talents but in their heart They're full of hatred, anger, they are full of jealousy, they despise other people, they look at other people that aren't as moral as they are, and they condemn them, they put them down. See, you can look at someone like that and be like, oh, they look great, the life is totally together. No, in reality, what they really need is they need an intervention. Their heart is filthy, it's broken, it's destroying itself. And unless there's an intervention... They may go on living the rest of their life looking really good, but internally they're being destroyed. Their life, their world is collapsing in on themselves. In the storyline of the Bible, whether or not you're irreligious and you're a drug addict like on Addicted, or you chew crayons like on My Strange Addiction, or you're into hoarding, or you're self-righteous and you're very religious, all of us need an intervention. That's the story of the Bible. Story of great sin and a great intervention, a great savior, a great redemption. And this is what we see. And so the motivation behind this ultimately is that God loves. But this leads us into sort of the second part, which is the default response of the human heart. It's because by nature, we are very distrusting of anything. We're distrusting of God. The natural default mode of a heart is to basically have kind of this mentality of, I won't trust anybody as far as I can throw them. And the same goes for God. I'm not going to trust God. I will not trust him and trust to him my heart, my life, my all, my sin, my fears, my shame, my guilt. I won't trust all those things to him because I'm not quite sure what he's going to do with it. If I share with him my deepest fears He might make fun of me. If I share with him my deepest guilt, he might hold that against me, crush me. And that leads to sort of the default mode of our heart, default mode of response. And verse 5 of Jonah chapter 1, I think, describes it really well. It says this in verse 5. It says, then the mariners, they were afraid, 
And they each cried out to his God. So what we see here in the storyline is that this great um, storm comes upon not only Jonah, but remember, Jonah's in this boat. And all of these people that are in this boat are basically brought into the same storm. Um, And they're perishing along with Jonah. And so they're all trying to figure out, what do we got to do? We're going to die. And they begin to, out of fear, cry out to something. And we see throughout the storyline, some of them start throwing stuff outside of the boat. They start rowing a little bit harder. They start uh, crying out to their God or their gods. Um, In other places in the Old Testament, when people are in desperate moments, they might even cut themselves. They might even slash their bodies, draw blood. All of these are basically means of trying to atone for something they know is not right in their heart in order to appease their version of God. So this kind of gives us a little bit of an insight into the default mode of our heart. What I mean by the default mode is that every single one of us has this as a sort of natural response. That when circumstances arise that are way beyond our control. You know, think about this in your life. Most of us, we live our lives with some illusion, right? Maybe it's a deception that we are actually in control of our lives. We look at our lives and we're like, I control my type of car that I buy. I control my office hours. I control my business. I control uh, my house. I control all these things. And when everything seems to be going well in our lives... And everything seems to be going right. We actually believe that somehow this is because of us. We've sort of jury rigged the whole system. So everything's working in our favor. But the moment something caves in. That we begin to look at that and we think this is, this is irredeemable. I don't have any control over this. I can't somehow figure this thing out. This is a, a, a twist or a plot that's bigger, greater, deeper uh, than I've ever dealt with before. I don't know how to deal with this. Then we become fearful. We become afraid. And usually out of fear, then we turn religious. Just like these guys. Cry out to a God. If you're honest with yourself, <coughs> if you look at your life, and oftentimes one of the reasons why <coughs> excuse me, we become very religious or start praying. <coughs> if someone can get me some water, that'd be, that'd be great. I did the wrong thing and I ate some almonds just before I came up here. Don't eat almonds before you have to speak. Just a little bit of advice. Um, one of the things that can oftentimes happen is we end up becoming very religious. We start praying to God. We start doing certain things, religious things, somehow getting God to be on our side. We start making these commitments to God. God, if you just somehow work this situation out, I promise I'll start going to church again. God, if you cure me from this disease, I promise I'll start tithing more money. And here's the ironic thing is that the moment things start looking fine again, Moment that there's some form of equilibrium already starting to kind of balance out or work out in your life, you stop praying. Pause. Thank you. Thank you, thank you, thank you. It's a big cup of water. Thank you. But the moment things kind of basically balance out, we stop praying. We stop looking to our God. We stop, stop calling upon him. And so what this basically means is that the whole reason why we went to God in the first place was because we found God useful and not beautiful. We saw God more as something that can be manipulated or worked with or bargained with. You know how we see God oftentimes? This first way, the default mode of our heart, is we typically are prone to see God more as a superintendent of a building. He's the one that we pay rent to. He's the one that we go to once in a month. But you don't ever sit down with your superintendent and have a meal with him. You don't ever sit down and ask him about his life. He's just, it's just sort of a cordial business oriented type of a relationship. And the moment something happens in your life where maybe, you know, there's a threat to kick you out of the house or to push you out onto the street or shut the water off or something happens, then you begin to realize, I need water. I need a roof over my head. I need to figure out a way to bargain with the cosmic landlord To get some traction back. To bring about some form of equilibrium and balance back into my life. And now you start making all these promises. I promise I'll pay pay more rent. I'll work harder. You know, I'll vacuum the hallways. I'll do something to somehow just get back into your favor. And the moment he capitulates and says, all right, it's all good. You just go back to the rest of your life. Because the default mode of our life, of our hearts, are not to worship and love and honor God. Because all of that involves 
trust. It's to view God as a cosmic landlord. And that doesn't involve trust. That just involves being a really good bargainer. And a lot of us are really good bargainers. Or at least we think we are. This is exactly what was going on here on the ship. This great storm comes upon them. And they're all trying to figure out a way to basically barter with God. God, if you save our life, if you do this, if you help us out with this. And here's the interesting irony of the story. Is that Jonah is below the deck, sleeping. Totally unaware of what's going on. Maybe he, he's totally aware of what's going on, but he doesn't really care. In other words, he's totally indifferent. Which, which is a whole other thing that's, that's not really good. Because... This is part of the irony of the story is that Jonah is supposed to be the prophet. He's supposed to be the guy that speaks on behalf of God. Remember we talked about this a little bit last week. That the way that God works all the time is through agencies. God chooses, picks, calls an agent to basically do his work. God did this with Adam and Eve. God did this with uh, Abraham. God did this with Israel. And then later on from Israel, God did this with each of the prophets. And later, ultimately, in this most final sense, God did this with Jesus. But God chooses agents to basically go forth to be a light set upon a hilltop. To be like salt that brings about preservation. But here's Jonah hiding his light. Here's Jonah like salt losing its saltiness and totally in indifference. So this is sort of the irony with regard to this. Now the reality is not only are we oftentimes always fearful about circumstances that we don't have any means to control. But again like I already mentioned it also begins to reveal to us something about the hidden makeup of our heart in which we become religious. All of us, somehow, some way, we become religious. Look, at the end of the day, every one of us are well aware of the fact that we need something bigger than ourselves of which to give ourselves meaning. Let me give you an example of this. Kind of work by reverse engineering your life. Um, I would not recommend it because there's a lot of things in it that would probably you find very offensive if you have a heart for God, I think, is the movie Office Space. But if you know anything about the theme of Office Space, it's about a bunch of people, uh, it's one particular guy who's basically spinning his wheels, his life away in a office surrounded by cubicles. His life stinks. There's no meaning to his life. He wakes up every day and it's all about traffic. It's all about dealing with a boss that's degrading and puts you down. It's all about dealing with people that are not as very smart as you. Your life is meaningless. It's miserable. There's nothing bigger than yourself. And basically the plot of it is I need something bigger than this, my life, this place, this office to somehow sweep me off my feet, to bring me into its story. And I would say, in a lot of ways, that is the theme of humanity. All of us live like that. We know, we know that if you have nothing to live for, meaning every single day it's the same old routine. You wake up at 11 o'clock in the morning. You don't really have any aim or goal or reason for living. You might eat breakfast at noon. Uh, by 3 o'clock, you start playing video games until midnight. And that's about the rest of your life. There's nothing bigger for you to live for. At some point, you begin to look at your life and think this is meaningless. Why should I even live? It's one of the reasons why oftentimes parents can sort of feel this kind of cul-de-sac of feel like all I do is change diapers and try to be this, this referee in my family to help kids stop freaking out and cater to my husband who's always degrading to me. And there comes a point oftentimes where you begin to realize is this all meaningless? It's one of the reasons why I think because of that, we oftentimes try to find other outlets to give our hearts away to. Let me explain it to you how Tim Keller once put it, a pastor in New York. Here's what he says. He says, our need for worth is so powerful that whatever we base our identity and value on, we essentially deify, or in other words, turn to God. We will look to it with all the passion and the intensity of worship and devotion, even if we, even if we think ourselves as highly irreligious. So basically what he's saying is this. So take, for example, if you have a job and your job is what gives you identity, you feel loved and wanted and appreciated. Every time you show up at your job, someone is always there to pat you on the back. You feel really good. Let's say you're a musician. You're a really good musician. Everybody basically comes up to you afterwards like, you're such an amazing musician. You make my heart sing. You feel really good. If you're an artist, you do things that make other people feel really valued, feel really good. They come back to you and you feel really good because they like what you do. 
if you turn that good thing into an ultimate thing, whereby you find your life and your existence from that thing, you will devote yourself to that with all of your heart. Here's even the word that we even use. Religiously. You religiously pursue your work. You religiously pursue your art. You religiously. We even use the same language. And here's the thing. Here's the way that you could know that this is what's happening. What happens if that thing that you're putting your hope in is threatened? What happens if that relationship that you're hoping to bring you an identity goes away? You begin to freak out out of fear. We even say, I'm afraid of losing that boyfriend. I'm afraid of losing my job. I'm afraid of what will happen. We're afraid. And that turns us into prayers. We pray. But unless you understand God the way that God wants to be understood, then the way that you view God is nothing more than a grumpy landlord that you got to barter with. So you pray, but you pray as one who's going to an angry, grumpy, threatening landlord who's threatening to evict you and you're working slavishly. You're making all sorts of promises to this God. You know what you're actually saying? At the end of the day, what's most important in your life is not God. He's just useful to you. What's most important to your life is that thing that you're fearful of losing. And what God does graciously comes in. He says, I don't want you to find your identity in your job. Don't you see how fragile that is? I don't want you to find your identity in your boyfriend or your girlfriend or your children or any other thing in this world. That's fragile. I've said this before, that you as a person are either as fragile or as durable as that thing that you put your ultimate hope and confidence in. So if you put your hope and your confidence in your job, the moment your job becomes threatened, you disintegrate. But if you put your hope and confidence in God, God never disintegrates. doesn't mean that you will never have moments of breakdown. But at moment, it means that you have an anchor so that when you are being tossed to and fro, at least you're anchored into something that's bigger than yourself. We were made to worship God. And the reason why oftentimes we respond to God in this default mode of fear and religion is because we know that deep down something's not quite right. So let's talk a little bit about praying. Because each of these people on this boat, they prayed. Jonah prayed. And uh, Jonah prayed actually more in chapter 3. But the religious people prayed. Um, praying is not necessarily a sign of faith. There's a prayer. There's two different ways to pray. I'll kind of put it this way. One is a prayer that comes as a result of fear, which is how these guys pray. They're not praying because they find God beautiful. They find God useful, and they pray. They pray with all of their heart, all of their mind, and all of their strength because the cosmic landlord is upset and angry and threatening to evict them into the sea, and they die. So they're going to try to barter as much as they can. And then the second way of praying is by faith. Whereby you see God as beautiful. That he's the end. He's the aim. That doesn't mean that we don't go to God and ask God for help in raising our children. Help to get the job. Help to pay our bills. Help in all these other areas. God is useful. Don't misunderstand me. He's not less than being useful. But to those people who have faith, he's far more than just simply useful. He's beautiful. And here's the thing about beauty. Art is not intended to just simply look at and to sort of deconstruct it. We call that science. Science can be an art. But oftentimes, when we just simply take art and deconstruct it and think, hmm, it was made with that type of paint and on this particular canvas and it had these particular drops and these particular things added to this and this particular color range, you, you're sort of deconstructing it and you're almost in some ways not entering into what it was intended for. Art is intended to be beautiful that causes us to be in awe of it. So here's the thing that we see with Jonah in this particular situation is that fear and religion, they really don't change our heart. They don't change our heart. They don't transform us. They don't turn us into more loving people. They don't give us freedom. Fear and religion actually lead us down a path of brokenness. I want to read you a, a little passage out of a book um, called the Jesus Story Bible. Is that right? Jesus Story Bible. Jesus Storybook Bible. That's it. It's one of my favorite Bibles. It's actually a kid's Bible, right? But I actually still read it with my kids, and they're in high school. 
Um, and it's more so because I love this Bible. So if you're a parent, you got little kids, you need to pick up this Bible. If you're a dad, you need to pick up this Bible and read this to your kids because it's a great book. Um, I want to read you this little passage. I was reading this to my kids last night, and it was really cool because at the end of it, one of my daughters was like, Dad, I saw something in here I'd never really seen before. So I think this says a really great way of saying it. So here's what it says. And again, it's kind of written to a younger generation, so don't feel insulted when I read this. So here's what he says. God had a job for Jonah, but Jonah didn't want it. Go to Nineveh, God says, and tell your worst enemies that I love them. No, said Jonah, those are bad people doing bad things. God said, exactly. They have run far away from me, but I can't stop loving them, and I will give them a new start. I will forgive them. No, said Jonah, they don't deserve it. So here's sort of this battle that's going on between Jonah and God. God's telling Jonah, Jonah, I want you to go somewhere. I have a plan for you. I have a mission for you. I have a call for you. There's something I want you to do. That these Ninevites, they're wicked, they're evil, they're broken. And I want to heal them. I want to bless them. I want to be a blessing to all of the nations. Just like I promised Abraham. And Jonah, I want you to be the spokesman. I want you to be the one that I send to go do this. And Jonah basically refuses. And as a result of that, brings this judgment upon himself. And not just upon Jonah, but also upon everybody that's part of the ship. The thing you need to understand So we have sort of this tendency to think of religion in terms of private terms. I worship God privately, what I think about God. And oftentimes we tend to deceive ourselves into thinking that our sin is oftentimes equally private. We just sin in our hearts and it doesn't really impact or affect anybody else. And I think what we see in the book of Jonah is that that's absolutely not true. That our sin oftentimes not only has great negative effect upon us as individuals, but also has great negative effect upon other people. We don't sin alone. We might sin alone, doing things in private on our own, but our sin has ripple effects that impacts negatively, oftentimes broad ranges of people. In this particular case, Jonah's sin, Jonah's rebellion, Jonah's running from God, brought upon this entire ship a storm that threatened to destroy them. Jonah's running from God. This is sort of one of the great ironies of the story, is that Jonah was called by God. He was the prophet. He was the prophet called by God to go speak forth to these Ninevites. And here's what Jonah's basic argument is, at least in his heart, is he says, I hate the Ninevites. They're wicked, evil, pagan people. I don't want to have anything to do with wicked, pagan, evil people. I love my Jewish people. I'm a Hebrew. I'm part of the chosen race of God's people. We pride ourselves in being clean and being pure, not like evil, wicked pagans. So Jonah runs in the great irony of, at least in chapter 2, Jonah runs from pagans. And where does he end up? In a boat full of pagans. The irony goes even deeper. Because guess who responds to God? Well, the pagans do. Guess who's still running from God? Jonah. How far? Jonah actually says, you know the way to solve this problem? Kill me. Jonah is willing to die. Then go and obey God. You guys check this out. This is where the Christian life becomes really challenging. Because like at the end of the day, we can talk a lot about, I want Jesus to save me so that when I die, I go to heaven. That's a nice, convenient way to talk about Christianity. I'll be really frank with you. That's not how the Bible describes it. Yes, the Bible talks about an afterlife. Yes, the Bible talks about there's a place that we will go. But if you read the rest of the Bible, the majority of it, you begin to realize it has to do with our response to this king and what he's doing here and now in our lives. If I can put it this way, a lot of people in America basically view Christianity kind of as a barcode you put on your body that once it's scanned, it basically says, go to heaven when you die. But it doesn't really matter what the contents inside that package are. As long as you have that barcode, the rest of it doesn't really matter. But here's the point with Jonah, is it does matter. Because inside Jonah, this is a storyline of Jonah. Yes, Jonah was a Hebrew. When, he, when they ask him, who are you? What are you doing? What's going on here? What's your vocation? Jonah doesn't answer what his vocation is, but he does say, I'm a Hebrew. I'm a Jew, and I worship the true living God that created the heavens and the earth and the sea and everything in it. But the reality is like, Jonah, you got all the right answers. But your heart is wicked. You're just as bad as the pagans. And Jonah goes so far to say, I would rather die than do what God asked me to do. 
I think we've got to think about this because, like I said, it's easy for us to say, I want to go to heaven. I'll pray the prayer. But when God says, okay, here's what I want you to do. You know those people that you've been bitter with your whole life? I want you to forgive them. Or the people that you've offended, if you're a dude, and you had sex with a girl, took away her virginity, God says, I want you to go and apologize to her. Own that. Show some level of responsibility. Get a little backbone. It's a hard call. Call that person up and bring reconciliation, redemption. I don't want to do that, God. I don't want to forgive. I don't want to pay back what I stole. I don't want to restore what I broke. I'd rather die. We're on a path of Jonah. Look, I know it's hard. The Christian life is not easy. It's challenging. It's radically challenging. This is why the words of Jesus, if understood rightly, should shock you. Look, if you hear the Christian message, you're like, oh, I'll sign up for that. That's easy. You didn't understand it. You didn't understand it rightly. At least if you are like, I'll sign up for this. I'll do it. But I know this is going to be tough. It It might actually cost me my life. I may end up dying in the process of living this out. Because at the end of the day, you begin to realize that what you gain is Jesus. See, if God is just your landlord, you're not interested in relationship with him. But if he's beautiful, you can't live without him. So what we see in summary, I'm going to finish with this. Is I want to ask the question, how, how do we undo sort of this default mode of our hearts? Because really at the end of the day, like I said, we are fearful. And we oftentimes turn to all forms of religion to somehow appease the gods that we perceive out there. But that never really does anything about changing our hearts, making us more loving, removing our anxieties, putting our hearts at rest, bringing us into a sense of peace and a calm. What does that? Well, here's the answer. And I think the answer is actually found to some degree in the passage here. If you were to look at the passage as being like a sign. And what I mean by that is like a road sign. Signs are not intended to be inspected, not looked to, but looked past. That's what a sign is. You look at a sign, uh, and you look past at it. You watch where the sign is pointing you to. And a lot of ways, a lot of times, we forget that. It's kind of, we're like little dogs, right? If you have a dog, and your dog comes out, and you just bought brand new food for your dog, and you're pointing to your dog where your food dish is, and you're like, it's right over there, and the dog comes up and smells your, your finger, Smells your hand. And you're like, dumb dog, I'm pointing to the food. Because a dog doesn't get the idea of a sign. The dog thinks your finger is what you're wanting them to go to. And in reality, the book of Jonah is like that. It's a sign. Because the book of Jonah, if you were to just kind of look at a couple key elemental things within this, uh, there's some clues in it. And with the story of Jonah, we see this guy Jonah. He's the prophet. He's unfaithful. He's called by God to be an agent to go forth and communicate and preach God's word. Uh, But we also see that there's a storm and sec- or thirdly, we also see that Jonah's asleep in the storm. And finally, Jonah basically says to the other people that are on ship, the way that you're going to save yourself is if you cast me into the storm. And once you cast me in the storm, God will be appeased and the storm will stop because God's really after me because I've been rebellious against God. God is pursuing me. God is wanting to bring about an intervention for me. It's painful, but it's ultimately for my good. But Jonah, here's the story. Now, if you look past that sign, you go into the New Testament all the way to the greater prophet, what you find is Jesus. He's the prophet. He was the agent sent by God, from God, to go preach, speak the word. He was the light that didn't hide his light. He was the salt that didn't lose its saltiness. Jesus, the greater Jonah, also, in one of the storylines of his life, was on a ship. It was in the middle of an incredible storm. And ironically enough, the way that the storytellers tell the story, the gospel writers tell us very similarly, there's a lot of similarities between the story of Jesus and the book of Jonah. Is that while Jesus and his disciples were on this boat, on the sea, the sea had become tumultuous, and they were all fearing death. They come to Jesus, and where's Jesus? He's asleep, just like the other Jonah. They wake Jesus up, and Jesus stands up, and rather than saying, Cast me into the water right now. Jesus stands up and says, storm be calm. Let these other people be free. And they don't die. The question is, why did Jesus do that? Why why didn't Jesus act out the rest of the story of Jonah in that particular moment? 
But if you know, like I said, the, the rest of the trajectory of the New Testament, you know, in a very real sense, Jesus did. Because by the time you get to the end of Jesus's life, you get past the garden, you get past the time when Jesus was basically being tormented and tortured, you see Jesus on the cross. This great darkness, if you want to put it this way, Jesus himself was on the precipice of the great storm. The only true storm, not made of wind, not made of water, but the only true storm that has any power ultimately to destroy a human being, a person, a soul. This storm of God's ultimate wrath, Jesus says, I will take upon myself, not by having others throw him into it. Jesus said on the cross, no one takes my life, I give my life. Jonah says, if you kill me, meaning you have to be the ones to throw me in. Jesus says, no one needs to throw me in. I will go in. And if you see Jesus himself willfully choosing to go into the storm of the wrath of the only storm that has any power to kill you, to the degree that you see he did that for you, the outcome of that is a great calm. That Jesus, literally, as we sang earlier, paid it all. Because he took upon himself the ultimate full storm of God's wrath for us, the rest of us have the freedom of going free. Now, remember I said earlier, I finished with this thought, because what we see is at the very beginning, I started mentioning this word agent, that God chooses agents. And at the end of the day, that God himself is in control, that God intervenes. And for at least four different times in the book of Jonah, we see that God intervened. He intervened by bringing the storm. God intervened by bringing this great whale. God intervened by bringing this great, you know, gourd or thing that kind of provided shade for Jonah. God intervened by bringing this worm. And we see God continuing to intervene throughout history. This time, sending another agent. An agent that would ultimately do exactly what God wanted him to do. So, for example, in John chapter 3, verse 16, we're told that God so loved the world... That he sent. This time God's not sending a storm. He's not sending a whale. He's not sending a gourd. He's not sending a worm. He's sending his son. As an agent. Of intervention. To break into our rebellion. To break into our sin. To somehow arrest it. To stop it. To cauterize it. To somehow free us from it. How? Because what Jesus does by coming into this world, he takes upon himself the price, the wrath that we deserve because of our constant ongoing unfaithfulness and rebellion to God. But why did Jesus do that? John 3.16 answers that. Love. He loves you. Look, if all you see God is nothing more than his powerful landlord that has the power to evict you. You will always barter with him. But if you see God as a loving father who actually cares about you, you're not going to barter with him. You don't need to. His intentions for you are good. You know what you'll do with a person that you trust? You'll give yourself to them. You will give them your life. You'll trust them with your sin. You'll trust them with your shame. Your hurt, your pain. You'll trust him with your finances. You'll trust him with everything because he's trustworthy. This is the reason why Isaiah basically states this, and I finish with this thought. Isaiah 9 6, he says, For unto us a son is given. This is another way of God saying, I'm sending my agent, not Jonah, not Isaiah, not Jeremiah, another prophet, not John the Baptist, my son. My son will come. And what type of agency, what type of blessing will he bring? We're told that he will come and he will be uh, mighty, wonderful. Uh, the, the government will be upon his shoulder. He will be called Wonderful Counselor, a mighty God, everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. All of this is in the same theme in the category of uh, redemption and in the same category of intervention. See, when good kings come, good kings come and they deliver from oppressive kings. When good, wonderful counselors come, they come. And the way that they operate, and the way that they operate well is they push back lies and bad counsel that has destroyed you. When um, a mighty God comes, he comes and he pushes back and destroys false gods, false deities, false idols that have the power to crush us. 
when an everlasting father comes, the way that God says that his son would come and he would basically point to that when an everlasting good father comes, what he does is he comes and he rescues us and delivers us from perpetual orphanhood by bringing us into his family. To the degree that you see that this God is not just simply powerful, but he's loving. That will change the makeup of your heart from being fearful and religious to being one that is overcome by something greater than fear, which is love. John is going to say later on, perfect love casts out fear. And rather than trying to barter with him, you'll just trust yourself to him. Look, at the end of the day, Christianity is really about God demonstrating his kindness and his love to us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. There's that theme. Rebellion, sin, and deliverance. To the degree that we minimize our sin and our rebellion, we actually minimize the sharp edge of God's love. But to the degree that we recognize and we own what's going on in our heart, that allows us to see the depth of the love of God that was put on display for us. And that turns us from merely being fearful patronizers of a deity to being red-hot, firing lovers of our God who cares for us, who's given us everything. That turns us into worshipers, people that can behold beauty and be brought into beauty and just honor beauty and love beauty and be brought into it. That's what changes us. Look, at the end of the day, we all want to be loved. But our greatest fear is being found out. So the reality is that if we love or if we are loved, as long as people don't know who we are, we feel a little bit safe, don't we? Think about the different relationships that oftentimes we're in. We're like, I want to be loved by somebody, but I don't want them to know everything about me. I don't want them to know what goes on in my mind. I don't want them to know about what goes on in the secret places of my thought life. I don't want them to know about my past because I'm ashamed of some of these things. I don't want them to know. A relationship that is built on love, but with, with no level of honesty or knowledge of who you are is actually shallow. But to be known and not loved is our greatest fear. It's one of the reasons why we keep secrets. Because we're afraid we won't be loved anymore. But to be known and loved simultaneously, it's paradise. And this is the type of love that God puts on display for us. You know that God knows everything about you. You can't run from him. You can't hide from him. You can't go far enough. He knows you. He loves you still nonetheless. To the degree that you accept that, you trust that, you believe that, you'll be a changed person. I'm going to pray. I'm going to have Trav come on up, and I want to finish. What I want to do as we just bow our heads and pray, I want to ask some of you, if you feel in your heart this pertains to you, to respond. What I want to ask you to respond to doing is to stand up. Stand up. I'll tell you why. Because we want to pray for you. Not to single you out, but to pray for you. Because some of us here, we can be irreligious, but we can also be religious. And the real things that are, in, that are destroying us isn't our immorality. It's our self-righteousness. The real things that are destroying us isn't meth. It's our pride. It's this attitude that we kind of put on, this facade. And think about this. This is our whole life. We jury rig our lives to live like this. We hang out with certain groups of people because, God forbid, we hang out with people lesser than them. Because we don't want that to ruin our image. Do you know how exhausting it is to somehow live and jury rig your life over and over and over again to wear the right clothes, to dress the right way, to hang out with the right people, to avoid certain circumstances lest you be found out? That's exhausting. But how freeing it is to know that in Christ you are fully known, simultaneously fully loved. That frees you to just stop drop on your knees and to enter into that narrative of god's love i'm going to invite you into that and i want to pray for those of you that kind of feel like that's where you're at so
Why don't you guys all bow your heads with me and let's pray. God, right now we pray for those that this is where they're at. That if they're running, they're fleeing, whether they're Christians or non-Christians, whether religious or irreligious, God, we believe that you desire to set people free. Set people free from themselves, set people free from their sins, set people free from the past that has uh, ruined them and defiled them and broken them, things that they have done in their own lives of sin, things that they have maybe had done against them to defile them. God, you want to set people free. And the way that we're set free is by not rowing harder, not being tossed into the sea, not fleeing to our little Tarshish, but by stopping and allowing you, our creator, to catch us. And once you catch us, we begin to realize that, God, your arms are not there to crush us, they're to hug us. God, I pray that we would stop running today. If you're here right now, you need this prayer. This is you. Just stand up right where you're at. I just want to pray for you. Have some people pray for you. As you're standing, and it's hard. It's challenging sometimes to stand up. Look, at the end of the day, we're here. We're family. We love you guys. For some of you, the the greatest fear of your heart right now is standing up. You're afraid you're going to be found out. You're still stuck, man. You're still bound. You need to be free. You're worried about what others think about you. You need to be free. Jesus wants to set you free. If you're standing, if you're sitting next to someone, maybe that's standing, would you would you mind if you're a Christian, just standing up next to them and laying your hands upon those people? So if someone's standing, find someone um, and just lay your hands on them. Um, you might need to cross an aisle or go a couple seats away, but grab someone. Don't leave people stand by themselves. Just pray for them. Pray over them right now. Um, and I want to pray generally prayer for those of you that are standing and then we'll sing a few songs we have some rugs in the front for you guys to just get down on your knees for Jesus we'll have some people off over to the side by the cross who would love to continue to pray for you I'll uh, have communion in the back if you're here you got kids uh, my encouragement would be to maybe go grab your kids and bring them in here they can be part of communion and be part of the worship here so God right now I thank you for your great love and your kindness that draws us near to yourself we don't deserve it And yet, God, you shower great favor and love and kindness upon us because Jesus paid the debt that we deserve to pay. And instead, in the wake of his deconstruction, we can be put back together again. In the wake of Jesus being torn apart, our lives can be given wholeness. So, God, we thank you for that. I pray for those that have stood up and pray that you bring healing deep healing in their hearts. You know the circumstances that have brought them here. Pray, God, that you would set them free. Set them free. So we want to worship you now, Jesus. Not as a landlord that we're afraid of, but as a father that we can truly draw near to with a great confidence that you won't cast us out or crush us or mock us but you'll love us. So we want to sing and worship. Let's do that now.